Ladies and gentlemen, the third panel today is entitled Singaporeans Living Longer, Asset or Liability. This panel will consider how Singapore's social and economic institutions can harness the advantages of longer lives and address misconceptions about Singaporeans living longer as a liability. Moderating this panel is Associate Professor Corinne Goh, Co-Director of the Next Age Institute at the National University of Singapore. I will now hand over to Professor Goh to introduce the panel and the speakers. Professor Goh. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Good to see you guys uh, standing around, walking and, you know, taking a little short break. Uh, please settle down and we will begin the session, the panel session. Right. This morning, you know, till now, I'm sure you have been hearing or listening intensely to the lectures, the presentations, and gathered a lot of knowledge regarding the aging population, the statistics, and the human side of it, the human capital uh, dividend, that we have to look at it, the discrimination against older workers, uh, issues on um, aging in place, community uh, support, and so on and so forth. And from the DPM's dialogue, I'm sure by now you are very clear about Singapore's policies on aging, how the government has paved the way on policies uh, and systems and structures to move forward. But then, if you have heard DPM said, you know, after his narration about the policy structures, he said, we have to ask ourselves, what is our individual approach to life? So we are bringing that macro issues now to the micro issues. So what is our approach to life? Now, for all of you who have heard all the lectures today, if I were to ask you to now think deeply to yourself, what is aging? What does aging mean to you? Use one word to describe it. Okay, I give you five seconds. One word, don't think too hard. One word to describe. What does aging mean to you? Five, four, three, two, one. Okay. I, I will not ask you to, to tell me what is that one word, but I would like to believe that having sat through the morning's uh, and afternoon's session, I think you would possibly perhaps reframe, you know, a negative picture maybe to a more positive one. I, I always ask students when I conduct uh, lectures on uh, pertaining to ageing, working with older persons in social work, and I ask them to reflect, what, what does ageing mean to you? And, and guess what? Most of the time, I will get 70% of the students giving me terms like uh, burden, deterioration, scary. You know, and lately one student said, sien. So I asked the student, what do you mean by sien? Sien means um, stagnant, boring, plateauing. So these are concepts or attitudes that you know, the young people would have bring to the, the classroom. And of course, I have some students who are wiser and they say that wisdom, contentment, happiness, and active. Right. So then, this brings us to this very important panel session today, which is uh, the last but certainly not the least. This panel session is titled Singaporeans Living Longer, Asset or Liability. Now, the reason why I ask you to reflect on what does aging mean to you is because 
If the narratives and discourse on aging issues are framed very pessimistically or perhaps very optimistically, what does it mean to our social and healthcare systems and policies which we aim to bring forth to enable Singaporeans to age in place successfully? So therefore, this is really a very important panel session. We aim to assess how our current social and health and economic institutions and policies can be better enhanced to help harness the upside of Singapore's longevity revolution. So with me, we have two experts. On my uh, right, let me introduce uh, Professor David Kenning. Prof Kenning is a visiting professor at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, National University of Singapore. Prof Kenning is a familiar face in Singapore. He comes here uh, inter intermittently quite often too, I think. And he's really glad to be here because of the winter in his country. So Singapore is still pretty all right, you know, warm. But we are really welcome him here to, the, to this session. Uh, Prof Kenning is uh, Richard Salter-Stahl, a professor of Population Sciences and professor of Economics and International Health at the Department of Global Health and Population, Harvard School of Public Health. Uh, his PhD is in economics, and he has done extensive research on the impact of health improvements on economic outcomes, and he has served in many uh, platforms, committees, uh, providing consultancy advice, and one of which is the, um, being a member of the working group of the World Health Organization's Commission on Macroeconomics and health. And along with uh, David Bloom, uh, Prof. Kenning originated the concept of the demographic dividend, looking at how changes in fertility and age structure affect macroeconomic performance. And certainly, he's an, an expert. His current work focuses a lot on economic and social policy responses to population aging. So while we were having a chat, you know, uh, and we were saying that, well, this is asset and liability, and who is talking about asset and liability? Prof. Kenning said that he will talk about asset. And now, let me introduce our second speaker. It's, uh, you know, Singaporeans know Dr. Karmajit Soy. Actually, she needs no introduction. Uh, she's a practicing medical specialist, and she's the first, Singapore's first female nominated member of parliament in the 1990s. And Dr. Soy has is a founder of many civil society organizations, including WINGS, that stands for Women, Women's Initiative for Aging Successfully and Aware. And she serves in many platforms too, uh, internationally, on aging-related uh, committees, one of which is the UK-based Help Age International. And Dr. Soy has won many awards, right? Uh, so I just want to point out uh, some key ones here. Uh, she was presented with the Lifetime Achievement Award by the United Nations uh, Development Fund for Women, UNIFEM, in 2006. And she was also the named her World Woman of the Year in 1992 and was inducted to the Singapore Women's Hall of Fame in 2014. So as you can see, um, Dr. Soy comes with um, very deep knowledge, uh, being in Singapore and having worked with uh, various uh, organizations at the ground and also at the higher level. So Dr. Soy says that, look, she will handle the issues of liability. So without further ado, 
let me now uh, invite Professor David Kenning to deliver his uh, presentation. So let's put our hands together and welcome Dr. Professor Kenning. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to start by just saying a few words about my uh, background and why I'm here. Um, I started out my academic career as a game theorist, working on issues of rationality and, how and human behavior. But in my 30s, I attended a talk, actually at a, at a talk, at a session very like this one, where I heard someone speak, and what they said actually uh, changed my life. Because what they said is, the big question in the world is why some countries are rich and some countries are poor. It's the enormous income gaps between countries that is a really big question in economics. And that's the thing we have to understand. And that led me uh, to go into economic development. It led me into empirical work. And about 20 years ago, I worked with a colleague, David Bloom. And we worked on a book uh, on the Asian economic miracle. And the question there was, why was Asia so successful? Why had Asia gone in one generation from extreme poverty to wealth? And the answer we found empirically was that it was really fundamentally caused by two things. One is health, improvements in childhood health that it led to better cognitive and physical development, and demographics, it moving towards low fertility, more female labor market participation, more investment in children, and that these are the two key drivers of the takeoff. There were other things, I think there were very good economic policies, openness to trade, but the health and demographics uh, really drove it. And I think I would point out to you is when we first uh, came up with the term demographic dividend and um, we went to the World Bank and talked about it, people laughed. And I don't mean metaphorically. They laughed out loud and said, this is just association, it's not causality. And I think uh, my academic career since then has been focusing on proving that these mechanisms are real and causal. Uh, I would say, uh, if there are any investors in the room, uh, I've just come here from Tanzania, and I think uh, Africa is now poised, to, uh, poised for takeoff. It's poised for a demographic dividend. There have been enormous health improvements in children. Fertility is falling. Women with high school education in Africa are now at replacement fertility. Africa is poised for a takeoff. You don't see it yet in the macroeconomic data, but you see it at the household level. And I think Africa is now exactly where Asia was in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, it's poised for growth. However, this conference is really about the other end of the demographic transition. This conference is about aging. And I would say there is a, an unfortunate definitional issue about dependency rates. I think children are dependent. Someone has to look after them. But I think calling old people dependents is really a mistake. They can be dependents. You can organize your society so that the old are dependent. But you don't have to. If people save for retirement and have their own resources, there is no need to think of them as dependent. And in fact, the other big cause of the Asian economic miracle was savings and investment. And those savings were generated by people saving for retirement. Saving for retirement is another incredibly important source of economic growth. 
And so I think it's a mistake to think of um, the elderly as dependent. A point I want to make, and I think a point that we have to emphasize, is that longer healthy lifespans are an enormous gain in terms of human welfare. Living longer, and I think particularly a key point here, it's longer healthy life. The age of onset of physical and mental disability is going up faster than lifespans. We're seeing a compression of the period at the end of life uh, where people are too ill uh, to take care of themselves. So we have this enormous gain, enormous improvement in human welfare, and the question then is, why do we have to have a conference? Why don't we just have a celebration? But we're not just celebrating. We're having these meetings and saying, well, this is a problem. And why is it a problem? Is because it's inconsistent with our current institutional arrangements. The fact that we're living longer, healthy lives is not consistent with the way most countries have set up their institutions. And to me, the very simple answer to that is institutions have to change. In many countries, there's a wish, in a sense, a desire to, to hope this problem goes away. People want to keep their existing institutions and not have to deal with the elderly. And I think that's completely the wrong approach. And I was actually very optimistic today, uh, hearing the uh, earlier talks, and I think here there's an acceptance that institutions have to change and society has to change. And I think that's exactly the right attitude. And I would say, Singapore, from among all the countries I work in, Singapore is actually much better set up to deal with this issue than most countries. I think that many countries have locked themselves into pay-as-you-go systems, into transfer systems that make the old dependent, and are having to live with the consequences of that. And Singapore, I think, has had a lot of foresight in terms of policy and hasn't done that. So institutions, not people, have to change. And when I say institutions, it's not just government. I think that includes families, communities, employers, and civil society. The other point, which I think, again, came out this morning very well, the economist in me says this has to be about incentives. But actually, I'm older now. I was an economist in my youth. I think when you get older, you can think about things more broadly. And a lot of what goes on in society is about social norms. It's about social relationships much more than incentives. And relying entirely on incentives, I think, is not going to get us uh, to the right answer. And I think we heard this from the Deputy Prime Minister. It's about the way we think about things, the way about individuals and society talk about things, and the way we think about things is incredibly important. So one thing I want to try to have you take away is a new way of thinking. And part of that new way of thinking, I think one of the institutions that we are mentally locked into is maximizing GDP or GDP per capita. We have this very measurable concept. And, I, but, and what I see around the world is GDP growth is going to slow down because of population aging, and people see that as an enormous problem. The, the purpose of human life is not to maximize GDP. 
The purpose of GDP is to maximize human welfare and the way we live our lives. You've got it completely the wrong way around if you're trying to change society to increase GDP. You're increasing GDP in order to change society. And so what I would strongly push for is the development of new measures of human welfare. We all know welfare is much broader than GDP. Two of the greatest inventions of the last century have been retirement and the weekend. When I started university in Belfast, we still had university classes on Saturdays. I don't think modern students would put up with that. Leisure, and there was a very good question this morning about this issue, about a speaker had argued we needed to work more in order to increase GDP. And the, and the question I said, well, what about leisure? I like to retire. I like to write books. I like to do other things. We have to think of this broader notion of welfare. And that broader notion of welfare includes leisure time. It also includes health. And it includes life expectancy, particularly healthy life expectancy. All of those things enter into uh, welfare. And then we should think about using that to evaluate policies. And so we should be happy to accept policies that lower income, that lower GDP, if they increase welfare. I think the important thing here is to get some measures. The problem is, if you have things which you believe are important, but you don't measure them, it's very hard to know what you're talking about and people don't take them seriously. We need a measure that is better than GDP. The other issue that came up this morning is the issue of incentives versus risk pooling. Is that we need incentives to get people to work hard and to do the right thing, but we need risk pooling because a life with high incentives gives enormous risk. And these two things are in conflict. The more you pool risks, the less what you do matters for your outcome, the more sharing there is. But we have to have both. If you go to the circus and you see the trapeze artist flying through the air, jumping from one hoop to another. If you go to the circus and you take away the safety net, that trapeze artist will try harder. They will grab on tighter and they will be more frightened and they will work much harder. But they will still sometimes fall. And if we have a society that is only incentive and no sharing and no risk pooling, when people fall, it will be disastrous. We have to have a safety net. But there's a trade-off. I'll talk briefly about uh, this issue. Uh, China recently introduced health insurance and pensions. I think these policies will slow down economic growth in China. One reason for the rapid growth is people are working hard and saving a lot because they're very frightened of being sick in old age. Growth will slow down, but we think there's an enormous increase in welfare from this. I'll also talk about uh, issues around increasing fertility. We, are, we heard this morning uh, about increasing fertility as a policy option, and the Deputy Prime Minister talked about this uh, as a policy option. Uh, and I'll also talk a bit about welfare inequality, because once we have this broader notion of welfare, I think we should move away from income inequality as an issue towards welfare inequality. So if we're going to measure welfare, what should be in it? What I'm going to argue for is that it should include life expectancy, it should include consumption, it should include health, and it should include leisure. 
I think a real notion of welfare would also include happiness, social networks, children, inequality, the environment. The problem is, if you want a complete measure, we're never going to get it. It's too difficult. I think we have to start with a simple measure that captures some things that are objectively measurable. GDP is only about market activities, the demand for traded goods and services where we have prices, but it's incredibly misleading if we use it as a policy goal. There are many things that will increase GDP but lower welfare. And I'll just give you one example. If we were to make everyone work every weekend in Singapore, GDP would go up. But people would not be happy. People like their weekend. They like playing golf. They like going sailing. They like spending time with their family. So I think this move to think about welfare rather than income is an essential one. If you want to measure welfare, we have to reduce all these dimensions to one number. We want one aggregate number measuring human welfare. And this graph shows the value of life by income quintile in the United States. Rich people are willing to spend more on life. They will spend more to avoid a risk of death. Does this mean that as a society, we should value the lives of rich people more? I actually think that's not the case. This is really an exchange rate. It's a rate at which people will give up money to buy health. But an exchange rate goes two ways. You can work out the rate of exchange for the Singaporean for the US dollar, is about 0.7. But you can also go the other way. The rate of exchange for the US dollar for the Singaporean one is about 1.42. Those are both equally good ways of thinking of an exchange rate. When we do that, and we look at the value of money rather than the value of life, the value of money is much higher for poor people. Poor people really value money in terms of life years. To say I, I would pay a lot for life means I don't value money very much. So this is uh, normalized by the US uh, average income, which is about $27,000 a year. And what you see is that even people the value of a, of, a, of a life lived with much lower income is actually quite high. It's very curved. Though some of you may earn more than $27,000 a year. There may be one or two of you in this room who are more are high income earners. And how does this, uh, what does this mean for you? Actually, up to a million dollars a year, the value of a life lived, a year lived at a million dollars is about three times that of $27,000. The value of extra money is not actually incredibly high. And that's because those very rich people are very willing to pay for increases in life, which is another way of saying they're not willing to pay very much for money. This graph just shows income adjusted life expectancy against GDP per capita. So we, we calculated this for a whole range of countries. And, and the key point is they're not the same. They're correlated. Rich countries tend to have better lifespans, healthier people, but they're not the same. And policies that maximize income-adjusted life expectancy and GDP will be quite different. Um, this table just shows some analysis we did using this new measure 
on the effects of rural pensions and health insurance in China. So when you look at health insurance, we think that providing rural health insurance will lower output by about 2.8%. It'll lower consumption, it'll lower capital. The big effect is lowering hours worked. People are working in China in order to accumulate money to pay for medical bills for themselves or for their families. But there's an in a huge increase with rural health insurance on welfare. It's con the consumption equivalent is about 11% increase. People really don't like the risk of medical expenses. And so you can lower GDP per capita, but at the same time, increase welfare. For pension insurance, the story is much less clear. For pensions, it seems it would lower wel welfare. We talked about uh, fertility, uh, and this graph shows the uh, China recently relaxed the one-child policy so that uh, families can have two children. We think this will have a, a jump up in fertility to about 1.8 from about 1.5. And I think some of the talk this morning argued that this would be good for population aging. I think the story is much less clear. If you look at working age shares, it actually takes about 60 years for the working age share to move in your favor with higher fertility. And that's because it takes 20 years for the children to enter the workforce, but those children also have more children, which increases youth dependency rates. So fertility policies are very, very long, uh, it takes a very long time to have an impact. I thought we silver herd people got more time, <laughs> but apparently not. In the long run in China, the higher fertility actually leads to lower income per capita, and that's because of slightly lower female labor market participation and slightly lower education of children when you have higher fertility. I'd like to end by talking a little bit about inequality. So we know there's enormous income equality in the US, but actually this is worsened by the fact that if you look at consumption, the consumption of the highest decile is higher than that of the lowest. So the top left graph is about consumption distribution. The rich guys, the high welfare guys have much higher consumption. But they also have higher health utility. Their health status is better. They also have much lower mortality. They live longer. And what this means is when you look at the ratio, uh, so the last column here is the ratio of the 90th to the 10th percentile in terms of welfare. When you look at consumption, it's about seven to one. The top decile is about seven times the consumption of the lowest. But when you look at welfare, it's about 20 times. And that's because the highest decile is much healthier and has much lower mortality. And I think that when we think about this welfare measure, it actually brings home this notion that societies can be very unequal. And, and inequality is much bigger than we think because of this correlation between good health, longevity, and income. So in terms of Singapore, I think the enormous advantage here is it's not locked into an unsustainable pay-as-you-go system. There is fiscal space for innovation. There's an issue of self-reliance and limited risk pooling. I think there's room for more risk pooling. 
But this is a judgment question. There will be less incentives for risk pooling, but Singapore is really at the extreme of not having, any, having much risk pooling compared to other countries. And in many other countries, I would say they need more incentives and less pooling. And we talked about rising health and long-term care costs. And here I think the real issue is value for money. Healthcare is getting more expensive, we're spending more, but are we getting value for money? And here actually Singapore comes out very well compared to other countries. It has a very cheap health system that produces uh, good health. So in summary, I think Singapore is already in a very good position. But I think also by facing up to the fact that the institutions will have to change, this incredible boon of longer healthy lives will become a real asset for Singapore. Thank you. Thank you, Professor David Kenning. Now may I invite uh, Dr. Kanwajit Soy. Uh, she, she will speak on the topic, misconceptions that frame Singaporeans living longer as a liability. Please put your hands together and welcome Dr. Soy. Good afternoon, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sorry, I'm a bit under the weather, so my voice is a little bit hoarse. Now, <clears throat> we heard a very positive and optimistic uh, scenario for our older population by, the DP by DPM Teo Chi Hen in his usual inimitable style. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say that institutions, people, not just uh, government institutions, but institutions have misconceptions that frame Singaporeans living longer as, as a liability. No. So this, I'm going to talk of these misconceptions that frame Singaporeans living longer as a liability. In 2016, Singapore was ranked third in the world for the longest average life expectancy and second in the world for the longest average healthy life expectancy. Therefore, we are not only living longer, but we are living longer healthier. Thus, we cannot equate biological age with chronological age. 70 is the new 50. Fortunately, as we have grown older, we have also grown richer. Singapore's GDP rose from just $900 in 1970 to $71,000 in 2016, one of the highest in the world. In spite of the abundance of these good tidings, aging in Singapore has generally been considered as a liability because of misconceptions about the aging process and because of ageism and age discrimination. Policy planners, media, society in general, and unfortunately some older people themselves are guilty of harboring views which associate old age with physical decline, with financial dependence, and with degraded mental functions. These misconceptions have clouded the promise of old age. I will now cite a few misconceptions that some policymakers seem to have internalized and tend to perpetuate. 
the very important population white paper conceived by the National Population and Talent Division for the direction of our country's future was presented in Parliament in 2013. Please note this very crucial but non-evidence-based paragraph in this vital document. For society as a whole, a declining old age support ratio would mean rising taxes and a heavier economic load on a smaller base of working age Singaporeans. Companies may not find enough workers. Now this population planning paper and many policy speeches have highlighted the adverse consequences of a declining old age support ratio or expressed differently as an increasing old age dependency ratio. But either ratio is an incomplete, inaccurate, and outmoded view of financial dependence in old age. The old age support ratio indicates the number of working age people on the right side, 20 to 64 in the population, available to support one older person aged 65 or above. Here we are assuming 20 to 64, that those people aged 20 to 64 who are engaged productively, and those who are over 65 who suddenly have to be supported from their 65th birthday onwards by their younger stalwarts. In reality, many Singaporeans over 65 are economically active and contribute either directly or indirectly to economic and social robustness. Also, if a retiree has saved enough money for his or her remaining life, should he or she be counted as dependent economically? We need, I'm sorry, there's a lot of uh, detail there, but it doesn't matter. We need alternative measures to reflect the true economic dependency of the elderly. One such measure is a savings-adjusted old age support ratio that requires an adjustment for savings available to the elderly, and that presents a much more favorable old age support ratio. Or if you put the age of those who have to be supported, as was mentioned by an earlier speaker, as over 70, the old age support ratio becomes much more favorable. Also, with lower birth rates, total dependency ratio has gone down, but we hardly ever hear this fact being articulated. We only hear of old age dependency ratio, which is but one part of the total dependency ratio. To make matters worse, the same cutoff age of 65 is used to operationalize old age dependency ratio even for 2030. There is no recognition of the cohort effects of better health and longer working lives of people in 2030. It is often assumed that the experience of the present can be extrapolated into the future. The 65-year-olds of 2030 will be healthier, less dependent, and more mentally agile than ever before. And so economic projections must take that into account. Another alarmist view that is often articulated by policymakers is that with aging populations, 
business activity would slow and job and employment opportunities would shrink. In contrast to this pessimism about business affairs, global professional services firm Deloitte says aging populations will generate a growth cluster of new business opportunities for this region and Singapore in particular. The silver economy will see growth in private healthcare, travel, pharmaceuticals, biotechnology, insurance, and retail industries. Also, with relatively high levels of asset ownership among older Singaporeans, there is an incre increased demand for the management of these assets, and this is generating opportunities in the financial service, insurance, and legal industry. The Deloitte report further ranks Singapore third out of 15 Asia-Pacific countries for silver market potential. With Singaporeans continuing to work and earning an income for a longer period of time, seniors are increasingly becoming consumers and paying at least GST, and not just dependents, which is the only role in which they are cast. Policymakers often point out to intergenerational conflict arising from financial dependency of aging populations. But unlike other countries, and thanks to the foresight of earlier policymakers, the reality here is actually quite different. The CPF system encourages self-reliance by making each individual responsible for his or her own retirement needs rather than burdening future generations with ever-increasing taxes and thus minimizing potential intergenerational stresses, as outlined by Professor Canning. Also, private intrafamilial transfers pass from older to younger generations. How many of us have, asked, have helped our children to buy their first apartment or first car? I will now turn to ageism, which in my opinion is a mammoth misconception about the aging process. Ageism is defined as negative stereotyping of and discrimination against individuals or a group of individuals because of their age. Misperceptions regarding the ability, motivation and cognitive states of older persons abound among society and policymakers. Where cognition is concerned, and this has been pointed out before, research shows that psychological functions do not decline gradually in the healthy elderly person. Instead, they plateau until a late age. This is due to improvement in crystallized intelligence as we grow older. This type of intelligence refers to the usage of accumulated knowledge and experience in decision-making at older ages. Now, I will point to some links between age discrimination and policies in Singapore and how they tend to convert Singaporeans from assets to liabilities. We are all well aware that Singapore is not a welfare state. Social spending in Singapore only amounts to 5.5% of GDP. In China, it is 8%, and an average of 21% in other OECD countries. The social safety net in Singapore is built on the 
key principles of self-reliance and family as the two most important lines of support. Policymakers and the government have drilled this concept of self-reliance into our psyche. And many older people want to continue to work, but the presence of ageism and age discrimination has trapped older Singaporeans between a rock and a hard place where employment is concerned. The retirement age in Singapore is 62 only. In the first place, why do we need a retirement age when there is no formal pension system? Also, there is heterogeneity where ageing is concerned and people do not age at the same rate and should not be retiring at the same age. Australia and US have no mandatory retirement age as that has been abolished. From retirement, let us go on to re-employment in Singapore. From the 1st of July 2017, employers must offer re-employment to eligible employees who turn 62 up to the age of 67. However, even if the employee is lucky enough to get re-employed and continues with the same job, the wage is often reduced and the contract is renewable yearly. Also, termination of service can be done at any time without any reason by serving notice as stipulated in the contract. If the employer thinks that the employee cannot be offered re-employment, then the company can offer a one-off employment assistance of three and a half months of salary, and that is the end of the matter. Now, uh, DPMTO did say legislation does not solve all issues, but here I would like to say it the Ministry of Manpower has acknowledged that, uh, the Ministry of Manpower has acknowledged that specific anti-discrimination laws may be needed to deal with age discrimination in employment. However, Companies argue that too much government protection is bad for business, but the Ministry of Manpower has countered with this argument. The global competitiveness of places with anti-discrimination laws has, remains relatively stable, and countries like US, Britain, Germany, Hong Kong, Japan have been cited. Yet the government is not willing to pass legislation to make re-employment compulsory till 67. On the other side of the coin, older people are still expected to be self-reliant. In fact, because of age discrimination, many perfectly healthy older workers feel they have been forced by circumstances into leaving the labour force. Yet, we bemoan the lack of workers for our economy. In addition, being denied a job will impact on the CPF savings of these individuals, and this may lead to financial dependency on the family and community. That age discrimination exists in employment has been acknowledged by our policymakers and by research published by IPS. If you can read what is written on the right side, the, in 2014, Madam Halima Yaakob, then the Speaker of Parliament and now our President, had this to say. We are still very much an ageist society. 
Sometimes people may not even know they are being ageist. I receive a lot of feedback from elderly job applicants, and they, say, and they say it is very difficult for them to get a job. And on the left side, when Deputy Prime Minister Dharman Shamugaratnam was speaking at a budget forum in 2015, he acknowledged that ageism in Singapore workplaces meant experienced older workers were being shut out of jobs. He said, I think we have to tackle ageism in Singapore. There is sort of a quiet, unstated discrimination among the mid-careers and those who are in their 50s. Close quotes. The Institute of Policy Studies' latest survey in 2017 shows that there is overwhelming agreement on age discrimination for workers aged 55 years and above who are looking for work. In spite of this big hurdle of age discrimination, older work people still want to be self-reliant, and the employment rate for local residents aged 55 to 64 increased to 67% in 2016, one of the highest compared to OECD countries. For those between 65 and 69, it was 43%, and for those over 70, it was 15%. I see, I think uh, Mr. Lien presented these statistics as well. The median age of our workforce is 43 years across all sectors, and we can anticipate it to reach 47 years by 2020. Currently, one in three workers is already 50 years old and over. In the near future, they will constitute the majority of our workforce. This is our reality. There is no place for age discrimination. How well we adopt our employment culture and how, we, and how well we eliminate ageism from our employment practices will determine Singapore's future economic and social viability. As has been pointed out, media also plays an important role in the negative framing of Singaporeans living longer lives. In television shows, for example, aunties and uncles are all too often portrayed as bumbling old fools. <laughs> Our society of older people is frequently referred to in the media as silver tsunami or a demographic time bomb, as if it were a destructive force. The ways in which older people see the three gentlemen just shown sitting around the ways in which older people are represented in the media can have a lasting impact on social attitudes and reinforce negative stereotypes held both by younger and older people. Sadly, these become self-fulfilling prophecies for older people and impact on older people's confidence and quality of life. The biggest problem for many older people is ageism rather than the process of aging itself. Let me now cite an example when ignorance about ageism is not bliss. In 2016, the government un unveiled its $3 billion action plan for successful aging, and that is the front cover. This is an impressive plan and provides a framework for preparing for our transition to becoming a super-aged society in 2030. But without a good hard look at the effects of ageism and the, uh, but without a good hard look at the effects of ageism 
On the ability of individuals to age successfully, we may not manage the transition well. We need plans, policies and action, not just for active ageing, but also for understanding the causes of ageism and reducing all forms of age discrimination. The 2015 WHO World Report on Aging and Health made this important observation, and I quote, age-based stereotypes influence behaviours, policy development, and even research. Addressing these by combating ageism must lie at the core of any public health response to population aging, close quote. Alas, there is no mention of any action against ageism in Singapore's action plan for successful aging. While aging is a dynamic process and is changing all the time, there is a structural lag of many years between the practice of public policy and the lived experiences of older people. Because of the stereotyping of older people as part of the past, we are often overlooked in society's plans for the future. In contrast, if older Singaporeans were considered as an asset, there will be a different orientation towards health and social expenditure for this group of citizens. I have five seconds left. Now I will use that to end, my, to end by thanking IPS, Mr. Janadas Devan, Dr. Gillian Ko, and Mr. Christopher Gee for inviting me here to share some of my thoughts. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Soy. I'm sure you, you are now, you know, you agree with me that uh, we have heard just two very excellent um, enlightening presentations. <coughs> a very quick recap, Dr. Uh, Professor David Kenning has offered us a new paradigm shift to looking at GDP measurement, shifting it to human uh, welfare. I'm sure you have lots of questions to ask, uh, hold it for a moment. And uh, Dr. Soy has also triggered our thoughts about um, redefining OH support, dependency, uh, of course, ageism, not just talking about it, what actions ought to be taken, as well as uh, the conception about uh, new opportunities uh, in, in the field. <coughs> so now I shall open uh, questions to the, to the audience. Please introduce yourself. Um, yeah, you can put up your hand and uh, give your comments uh, and also ask for clarifications if you need to. Yes, the gentleman there. Yeah, would you like? Uh, yes. I want to thank... Uh, Professor Kenning and Dr. Soin for being so kind to us who are 65 and over. I am a septuagenarian and still working. And so hearing you saying all those wonderful things about how we can still contribute uh, encourages me very uh, much. May, may I ask you to introduce yourself again? My name is yes. William Wan Hi. from Hi. the yes, Singapore right. Kindness Movement. Hi. So I really appreciate kindness to everybody, <laughs> especially for people like us. In fact, I am very encouraged today also to have heard uh, Professor N. Wee, and I was uh, just chatting with Professor Wang, Wang Gangwu. These are my heroes. I hope that I will be like them in due course, still working. What I want to say is this, that while it is true, that ageism is uh, alive and well in Singapore, 
I must say that we are making some progress. Last year, first of all, I want to say that I, at 64, I was asked to run the kindness movement. I told them I'm too old. And they said, no, you can do it. I've been running it for seven years. So I'm close to 71. In fact, last year, in March, I told them it's time for me to step down and let some younger people do it. And they said, no, you still can do it. So they asked me to stay on for three more years. Now that says a lot about the progress we're making. That I think if we as older people can um, take uh, um, pride in being older and not to be ashamed of being older and if we can act like we are not so old and be active and uh, contribute, we can make a difference because we are truly, and I speak to my senior friends, we are truly a repository of crystallized wisdom. And I am asking also our younger friends here, I think the way to start for us to truly overcome ageism and truly be um, a happy intergenerational, proactive, contributory citizenry is for our younger people also to go back to our old Confucius values Respect your seniors. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Wan. Based on Dr. Soy's definition, you're only 51. You have 20 more years to go before you reach the current age. So thank you very much for your encouragement and your comments. Uh, any other comments? Yes, please. Hi. Uh, oh, uh, okay, Where, where's the lady? I can't see you. Oh, okay, so sorry. Okay, okay. ladies first. Yes, thank you. Uh, good afternoon. I, uh, I'm Wong Shen from Dunham High School. I would just like to pose a question to Dr. Sai. Thank you for the, uh, the speech. I would just like to ask like, the feasibility of uh, having anti-discrimination law because uh, would that instead um, like cause employers to not want to employ elder workers for the fear of, um, for the fear of this and that? Uh, this anti-discrimination laws. Thank you. Thank you. Can I ask, uh, is there a student asking a question too? Would you like to also ask the question? Okay, hi. Um, thank you, Dr. K uh, Professor Kenning and Dr. Soin for your enlightening presentation. I'd like to ask a question to Dr. Soin. So you, um, you've, uh, thank you for raising up a lot of misconceptions when it comes to the aging population. But I'd like to ask based on your experiences because you've founded the, uh, you founded the Women's Initiative for Aging Successfully. Uh, wings as well as uh, AWARE. So as a representative of the civil society organizations in Singapore, how do you think um, their role can be amplified in Singapore? Especially considering that based on the IPS survey, uh, many Singaporeans actually see that um, second in line to family support would be government support instead of community support. So in this case, how can we further amplify the support for all these civil society organizations to better care for all these elderly and at the same time promote and really clear all these misconceptions that you've mentioned beforehand. And to Dr. Professor Canning, uh, thank you for raising on the point about the distinction between uh, understanding GDP as well as welfare. So how would this new paradigm actually shape, uh, potentially shape new policies in Singapore when it comes to the aging population? Uh, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you for the questions, Dr. Thank you. Um, for the anti-discrimination law, 
Uh, even the Ministry of Manpower has agreed that anti-discrimination laws are necessary. And if in countries where they have been already in, in, in put into practice, they haven't suffered at all where competitiveness is concerned. And you're getting an older worker with institutional memory and less likely to job hop, then Maybe there may be uh, some health issues, but usually older workers, that is taken into the older workers' salary when they are offered. So I don't see how, you know, right now they have to offer re-employment anyway, but they don't because they say, well, you are, you know, you're not, uh, we don't need you. But if it is compulsory, they will have to go through the motion. And if it's really unsuitable, I'm sure they can give that reason to the employee or to the Ministry of Manpower. So secondly, the second question about how whether civil society needs to lend in a bigger hand, we obviously, as the theme of this conference is together, we obviously have to do it together. But I think, I also of the belief that of course, civil society can do more, families can do more, individuals, but I think the government has to pitch in a little bit more. One, we have become so much more wealthier, and people are our only assets. And we must stop worrying about, oh, you know, we will run out of money, the, the Singapore will no longer exist. You know? We are not the only society in the world with Singaporeans living longer lives. For all we know, in another few years, there may be some aging things that will make people live even longer. So we are landed with the fact that we are going to live with Singaporeans with longer working lives. So let us make it work. So if I don't know whether that answers the young man's question. Of course, civil society can do more, but how much can civil society do? Because it's a bit fragmented and works in its own little domain. But I think the government is, can set up, set more examples and do more, especially in the care of health, where we have seen earlier by Dr. Paul Thumbaya that 50% of the burden falls on, the, on the, uh, either the, the patient or the family or the employer. So that is one of the highest, I think, in East Asia. We need to reduce that burden a little bit. Thank you. Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, I'd like to just uh, actually start by saying it was a, a, a real pleasure and an education to listen to Dr. Soin speak. I spoke about the general concept of the need for institutional change. And I think uh, she much more clearly um, made the point that in order to have institutional change, some people need to be prodded. And I thought she was doing a very good job of, uh, of prodding people quite hard. Um, Institutional change sounds uh, quite anemic, but it's actually a very difficult process. Institutions don't want to change. They'd rather sit to the way they are. Change is hard, and it needs constant prodding. Uh, on the question about um, changing from GDP to a welfare measure and how this affects policies, I'll give just one example of that where I, I think it's, um, it's very clear. Aging populations will mean there are many older people and those uh, will be an increase in healthcare costs. And that's often seen as a burden, is that increase in healthcare costs uh, may have to be financed by taxes or it's financed by saving or by families. Someone has to pay for it. Uh, 
it actually, uh, the, uh, the health spending uh, goes into GDP. Uh, the health spending goes into GDP and is counted in uh, GDP per capita, uh, independent of whether it produces health or not. I think in many countries, uh, there's, there's a lot of health spending that does not produce health. Um, and uh, the United States is actually a prime example of that. But it goes into GDP. The real question about healthcare, I think, is not um, how much it costs and who pays. Those are important questions. The real question is, are you producing health with the money? Are you spending money and are you getting <coughs> something from that, which is improvements in health, that's improvements on longevity and the quality of people's lives? And measuring, are we producing health with our healthcare spending is the fundamental question. If we are, then we can talk about who should pay for it and what's the right organization of that. If you're not producing health with their health spending, then you shouldn't be doing it. But it's, it's thinking about the overall welfare, which includes longevity and health status, that makes you start thinking about that. And we should not be including um, health spending as part of our consumption measure. If it's not producing health, it's a waste. The value of health spending is the health it produces, not the, not the spending. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Amor. <coughs> Hi, Gupta from DBS Bank. Uh, first, let me join uh, Professor Kaining in congratulating Dr. Soin uh, for her usual very feisty comments. Um, uh, I have to say, first of all, let me uh, express vehement agreement with your uh, idea of the 70s, the new 50. Nevertheless, I'm going to offer you an alternative narrative to the need, um, your question about why do you have a retirement age? I think there's a good narrative for why a retirement age might make sense. And to do that, I'm going to uh, rely on two facts. One is the impact of technology, and the second is a redefinition of the goal. I'm in entire agreement with your premise, Dr. Canning. We need to redefine GDP. GDP is a Simon Kuznets 1930s measure for production. We need to think about welfare. But if you take those two realities, number one, technology is changing the nature of work, and it is changing the nature of jobs. There is no question, but jobs as we know them today, jobs in organized sector, large corporation and companies are going to decline. In a world with declining jobs, I think you will find it more and more incumbent on societies and governments to create jobs for the younger populations that come into the work stream. And I think this idea that you cannot have a bunch of people chop jobs because they're there, but you need to create a flow of jobs is actually an important idea. I think it's more important to welfare in society to be able to help young people move into organized sector and jobs and do that in a systemic way. In my own view, the future of work is actually for large parts of society is going to be what uh, DPM calls the gig economy, the capacity to do entrepreneurship. And I think uh, jobs in the future are going to be like pre-industrial revolution. More small-scale sector, self-organized, self-driven jobs. With the internet, you can be globally, instantly global. I think the people who are better equipped to do that are people who've got the crystallized intelligence, who put some money away, and who've got better risk-taking capacity than people entering the workforce. So to me, the right way to re-architect society and to re-architect the rules for the new order is to create a social support system for seniors to move into entrepreneurship and to move into being able to be part of the gig economy, whereas you keep the job, organized sector job creation for young people who come in through the system. And if you want to do that, then a retirement age is actually a good thing. Would you care to comment? Thank you. Well, 
uh, you, you've made a very good point, but I think we need to look at two things. One is, you can always move older people horizontally. You don't always have to move them upwards. Second thing is, the, the older population that you're talking about is more the, po the post-baby boomers, because we saw that more than nearly half of our population doesn't even have primary, older people doesn't even have primary education. So we are still not reached the stage of them becoming entrepreneurs and you know, using their crystallized intelligence. I think we have to go along this route for a while, but once we have, in another 20 years, when we have reached that state, I completely agree with you, older people will want to move out and do their own thing and leave the job market to the younger people. Prof Kelly, let's comment. Yeah, um, I agree completely uh, with the issue is that I've been emphasizing aging as a, a change in uh, society that requires institutional response. But actually, technological change is a much bigger driver. And societies have to adapt to technological change. Uh, and I think that, I, I didn't talk about that, but that's, that's incredibly important. I think the issue around ageism is using chronological age as an indicator. And I think that's just wrong. And I think, uh, this change means that firms and employers have to think much harder about who they employ and why they employ them. The retirement age makes it easy for them. They can just let people go at that age. I think we have to think much harder about how to keep on productive people, and if people are more productive doing something else, maybe uh, how we shift them to that, rather than have this arbitrary number. I would say, uh, I think the arbitrary number, uh, the use of the term dependency ratio for the over 65s is very misleading and we should stop it. Uh, I would also, also point out that this is true at the other end. When we talk about the youth dependency ratio, we talk about uh, children under 16. Uh, I don't know if any of you are parents and if you have children, but they don't actually become automatically no longer dependents once they go past 16. Uh, I have noticed this personally. And uh, the fact is, uh, statistically, uh, the average person does not uh, earn more than they consume until age 27. So if you're thinking about the youth dependency rate, it should actually be 27 and not 16. And I think we have to have more realistic numbers and numbers that actually reflect uh, what's going on in, re in society rather than these arbitrary numbers that were set 30 or 40 years ago and we're still hewing to, which give rise to these misconceptions. And I think this is part of this issue around ageism. We have to change ways of thinking, and it's not useful to use these terms because they're very misleading. Thank you. Any other comments? I think we can take a few more. Yes, please. There's one here too. This, uh, I think he came first. Thank you, Chair Zainal again. Uh, at the risk of uh, adding to this negative framing of Genius. I don't want to sound rambling, you know. So I beg your indulgence, Chair, to first make a quick observation and then ask a question. Uh, I am very inspired by Mr. William Wan from Kindness Movement for speaking up and also sharing examples of uh, Professor Wang and, and we. Uh, I would like to so in all humility, look at myself. I'm 71 going 51, is it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> But uh, I'm very happy that uh, even just reaching 70, I've just been appointed to several boards, including Media Corp, NTU, and the latest being the MOH benchmark. 
And I would like to see that as part of their recognition for senior citizens to be still playing a role and making sure that the voice of the senior citizens are reflected and they're all relevant, whether it's media, whether it's technology and students' population and also healthcare. That's my observation. So I think more of this should be highlighted. My question now is, having said that, we all have full empathy for employment, for opportunities for the senior citizens, but there are real challenges. Only two nights ago, I met someone who reached 62 and reflected the kind of anxiety disorder. And he would have problems, actually, when EVs continue to be employed. I know they are smaller in number compared to those who are actually more active and can contribute, but uh, do we really understand the challenges facing employers, institutions that want to continue these people and what are the kind of challenges and how are we well geared to help these people who may be on the verge of facing anxiety disorder or some other problems, physical or mental or psychological, and uh, is this being done enough by institutions and government to prepare the society for such? Thank you. Thank you. Can I answer? Well, first of all, I think the National Council uh, of uh, social service is doing quite a lot of research. They may not be doing in older people, but they're doing on people with mental uh, problems who are depressed and how hard it is for them to get a job. Also with people with physical disabilities. So it is not older people alone who have mental uh, you know, problems of physical disability. It stretch, stretches along the whole of society. So you're right, of course we should find out, but basically it is still mindset because you don't want to employ someone who you think is not going to fill the job. But if we realize that we do need these people for, because they're not enough workers, and for example, the government has given workfare for people who are over 55. So similarly, as our, our employment rate you know, gets tighter, then people will employ more people and after counselling and all kinds of things. And just making one point to uh, Mr. Gupta, you are right because I am self-employed and I don't need to retire. I decide when I retire. So the entrepreneurial uh, suggestion that you have for older people is very good because then they can retire when they want to. There will be no retirement age for them. Thank you. Listening, listening to the conversations here, I can't help it. I'm social trained. I would like to offer a pointer here that uh, issues about mental health, it doesn't begin when you're old age. It starts even early in life. So I think the point here is that we want to deal with uh, mental health issues. We have to start in the earliest life stage of life, you know, to get it right. So that when you grow old and when you're at a later age, you're fine because you know how to manage your life uh, despite the limitations. Thank you very much. Any, any comments on Prof. Kenny? Uh, no, I would just like to say I think <coughs> the, the whole basis of anti-discrimination is we should be looking at the real issues, and I think mental health is one of them, also mm -hmm. physical capabilities but not at arbitrary things, which mm -hmm. are the uh, chronolo chronological yes. age. And I do, but I do think uh, there are real issues there that have to be addressed. Thank you. Any last question? <laughs> yes, please. And uh, two questions, and then we'll put, round up the session. Thank you. Uh, hi. Uh, hi. I would uh, like to thank the, all the speakers today. Uh, sorry, were you okay. about to say something? Uh, okay, why don't uh, you say it, continue saying, and then the gentleman continue, and then we'll round up the Q&A. 
Sorry. Uh, hi, I would like to thank all the speakers for their wonderful insights today. I'm Sin Yi from River Valley High School. And after listening to the speeches today, I realized that there is a sort of contradiction in the type of narrative that we want to portray the senior citizens in our society. Because from today's speeches, I hear two main lines of reasoning. On one hand, we want to portray the senior citizens as self-reliant. We want to dispel the stereotypes that media portrays of these elderly citizens. We want to accord them the respect that they need. But then on the other hand again, we realize that we have an aging population and this necessarily entails like an increase in social spending and like the welfare that we need to uh, uh, the welfare that we need to provide for these elderly citizens. And what I'm thinking here is that in the scenario that we do dispel like kind of the like the notions that these elderly citizens are self-reliant, would that maybe on the other hand also make it less compelling for citizens or a cause citizens to be less accepting or tolerant of increased spending on welfare. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. The gentleman can ask a question. Good afternoon to the panel. Uh, my name is Morris, actually from the Institute of Policy Studies itself. So I've uh, bring the discussion back to GDP actually because mm -hmm. I think uh, we are long overdue to actually look for a different indicator. A lot of people have recent years, they've mentioned things like your gross national income, gross national product. So it's quite interesting to hear from uh, Professor Canning that he, he wants to look at um, welfare. So, but I'd like to actually point out, this GDP, I feel many policymakers use it as a proxy for job growth, which arguably is one of the most important, in, um, it contributes to welfare in a sense. So if you look at the US in the 80s, uh, wage growth has been stagnant for many US citizens since then. And human welfare since then has dropped tremendously. And their job market for the longest time has been very, very sluggish. So in a sense, do you think that it's very feasible to replace GDP with human welfare in a sense that even in your slides you mentioned at the cost of GDP, which would mean taking away jobs. So if you look 10, 20 years down, down the road, perhaps um, if there's less jobs, then welfare would drop. So is it really that feasible to use human welfare rather than a purely coal number, which I feel is also very cold, but no one has really seemed to propose a proper alternative. And to Dr. Soin, uh, I agree that the tendency ratio is actually outdated, but in a sense, would it be that the ages of 16 to 64 is actually used as a policy tool, as a cutoff? So in that sense, dependency ratio does make sense because at the age of 65, you suddenly qualify for a lot more subsidies. So the end, at, at end of it, it really, what really matters is how much tax you pay versus how much benefits you get. So in a sense, if policymakers continue to use this uh, age as a qualifier for whether you qualify for more subsidies or not, then it, the dependency ratio makes total sense and the number of 2.1 by 2030 is really a still a cause for concern because you qualify you simply qualify for more benefits in the sense. Would you agree with that, perhaps? Yeah, so uh, <coughs> actually, let me just address both questions. On the first question, um, actually, there was a very important word there, I think, respect. And I, I didn't put respect in my welfare measure. And I think it's very difficult to do that. But that actually is one of the things that people really value. Uh, on this issue of... Uh, self-reliance versus taking care of the elderly. What I'm really advocating is a system where the uh, people save for their own retirement. And I think if people save for their own retirement, which already is happening in Singapore, 
There is, uh, the old are not really dependents. In fact, the old are then spending their savings. They're employing the young to look after them. It's the young who are dependent on the old. But even with that system, there is risk. The big issue, I think, is, um, and the Deputy Prime Minister talked about this, is moving towards some risk pooling. You might run out of savings because you live too long. You might have very large medical expenditures. So I'm not talking about that the average person is getting paid their pension by young people. What I'm talking about is the need for some risk sharing uh, to, uh, to really get rid of these very bad outcomes. Those are really hurting welfare. And so when I, when I uh, look at my welfare measure, these small number of bad outcomes really can affect uh, welfare. Because not only do those people get affected by it, but people worry about it. The old worry about these bad outcomes. So I'm not talking about a system of moving to taking care of old people completely. The average old person will pay for themselves. It's, it's really to mitigate risk. On the issue of GDP, I think that uh, it, is a, it is a poor indicator, and it, we do have this issue, in, particularly in the United States, of three decades without wage growth despite rapidly rising GDP and incredible increases in inequality. And this emphasizes, I think, that GDP is not a good welfare measure. I think the problem is coming up with an alternative. But I think we have to. And I think we have to come up with an alternative so that we can talk sensibly about how the country is doing. And we fall back on GDP because it's, it's measured. So we have to be willing to, to have some imperfection in that measure. But I think if we're willing to do that, it can be very informative. And it will stop people thinking about the governments and society's deliverance of issues around health and risk avoidance, as well as um, uh, economic growth. Thank you. Well, first, I'd like to answer the young lady's question. First of all, what you consider as increased spending for older people, if you're looking at MediShield Live and you're looking at the other things, it's not the government that is spending more money, it's risk pooling among the population. So you don't have to worry that it is, the social spending in Singapore is only 5.5%. And the, so when you risk pool, which as Professor Canning has been saying over and over again, we are helping each other, those of us who are well, are paying for those who are not so well. So that is a risk pooling. So please remember, it is not money coming from the government or from the taxes of younger people. It's us sharing. A young child can be born with a congenital abnormality. And then the older people who have been paying all this time into medicine life will be subsidizing that child's treatment. The next thing is to this young man. Well, first of all, why do you want to use a ratio which, can you not plan that older people are assets, all right? We need to utilize them as much as we can, make sure their health remains good. You mean to say, just to know that ratio is going to fall from eight to two, is going to make us take more action? It's alarmist. I think what governments, communities, everyone has to do, and as we said together, is make sure that the health of most people is looked after, especially the health of older people. Because the longer we can keep them healthy, they're more likely to die suddenly without having long, you know, after a long healthy life, to die suddenly, rather than, you know, lying down in hospitals and nursing. And this is why some of these ageist policies are bad, because older people internalize, and they say, I'm not good 
for anything. Don't spend money on me. I've got diabetes. I will just stay at home until they get kidney failure and gangrene. So if you want to use a ratio or a measurement, it must serve a purpose that is. If it doesn't serve a purpose, then I would rather not use it. Thank you, Dr. Soy. I think adding on to the last word about the you know, sudden death, I think I just want to say that, uh, <laughs> Lawrence, you have to recraft the end-of-life program for, so that the living can cope with sudden deaths of their loved ones. Okay, um, it is really my pleasure now to close the session. I think you agree with me that we have a very interesting discussion and also hearing from the uh, two uh, speakers. Um, two key uh, points I would like to uh, share and so that you bring home and start to crunch um, and have further conversations with your organizations or your colleagues. I think uh, very clearly, uh, this session brought to our attention a new paradigm shift about the need to re redefine concepts, uh, GTP, uh, dependency ratio, support, and so on, and perhaps other concepts that you, you may have within your agencies to think about. Uh, how, how can we not let it lapse into a state of liability, but uh, bring it up when we look at concepts to, to look at assets instead? The second dimension is that it's very clear from both speakers that institutions need to play a part. Uh, talking about it is one, taking action is another. Really, then the action plan comes in. And uh, the third point is really that uh, all of us play a part. So I'm back to my earlier, uh, you know, I asked you to reflect what does aging mean to you in one, using one word. So we are back there again. So because I believe that uh, if oneself doesn't see the need and we still, you know, continue to carry on the negative uh, perception or the stereotypes, I think change will be much more difficult. So change, I think, comes with uh, self as, um, as a first starter. So as you would reckon, it is really my Great pleasure, really, gentlemen, uh, ladies and gentlemen, to chair this panel. And I feel so much younger now, uh, knowing that I'm 20 years younger. <laughs> and I'm sure, um, you know, I'm sure you will continue to have the conversation and carry on the good work uh, for the aging population and the future of Singapore. With that, uh, please join me in thanking uh, Prof. David Kenning and Dr. Karmajit Soy. <laughs>